Welcome to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds, a weekly podcast for pharmacists, physicians, physician assistants, and nurse practitioners who are interested in learning more about clinical pharmacology topics. I'm your host, Garrett Schramm, Director of Pharmacy Education and Academic Affairs at Mayo Clinic. To claim pharmacology CE credit or to get a copy of presentation slides, visit ce.mayo.edu slash pharmacy podcast. Treatment-resistant depression typically refers to major depressive episodes that do not satisfactorily respond after two trials of antidepressant monotherapy. In patients with major depressive disorder, only 30% fully recover, meaning 70% of our patients have remission or no response at all. Interestingly, there is growing data and investigational studies describing augmentation of traditional antidepressant therapy with non-standard of care medications. Today, I invite Lauren Dolly, PharmD, to describe antidepressant augmentation with different agents, including atypical antipsychotics, lithium, lamotrigine, liothyronine, ketamine, and L-methylfolate. So this presentation will go through treatment-resistant depression and augmentation strategies utilized in the treatment. After today's presentation, I would like you all to be able to recall the etiology and pathophysiology of treatment-resistant depression, discuss the role of pharmacogenomics and L-methylfolate for treatment-resistant depression, and select a preferred agent for a patient with treatment-resistant depression with evidence to support its use. First, we'll begin looking at a case. KS is a 24-year-old female presenting for a checkup regarding her antidepressant therapy. Her past medical history is significant for major depressive disorder and generalized anxiety disorder, both of which were diagnosed at the age of 17. Her PHQ-9 score is 21, indicating severe depression. Her current medication includes fluoxetine 40 milligrams daily, and her past antidepressant trials include paroxetine, sertraline, citalopram, escitalopram, venlafaxine, and bupropion, all of which were taken for at least eight weeks, and none of which have provided complete remission of depression. The DSM-5 criteria is utilized for the diagnosis for major depressive disorder, or MDD. MDD is diagnosed when five or more are present during the same two-week period, representing change from previous function. One or more is either depressed mood or loss of function, uh, or loss of interest or pleasure, excuse me. The rest are listed for completeness sake. Other important criteria to note are that symptoms cause significant distress or impairment in social, occupational, or other areas of functioning. The episode is not caused by a substance or another medical condition. Occurrence is not better explained by other psychotic disorders. And lastly, the patient has no history of a manic or hypomanic episode. The PHQ-9 is a screening tool available that may be used initially for quantifying the depressive symptoms and for monitoring depression severity objectively over time. Listed are the questions utilized in the screening with the scoring criteria. I also included the scoring to see where patients fall, whether they have mild to severe depression based off the score on the previous slide. If you recall, our patient from our case has a score of 21 indicating severe depression. Now looking at the differing depression definitions. Major depressive disorder is diagnosed in patients who have suffered at least one major depressive episode and have no history of mania or hypomania, as discussed within the DSM-5 criteria. 
The term treatment-resistant depression typically refers to major depressive episodes that do not respond satisfactorily after two trials of antidepressant monotherapy. However, the definition has not been standardized and the STAR-D trial defines it as lacking remission to one or more adequate trials of treatment. The term treatment refractory depression typically refers to major depressive episodes that are highly resistant to treatment and do not respond satisfactorily to numerous sequential treatment regimens. However, the definition has also not been standardized and there is no clear difference between treatment resistant and treatment refractory depression. The American Psychiatric Association recognizes three main phases of treatment for patients who have been diagnosed with MDD, the acute phase, the continuation phase, and the maintenance phase. Once remission of the depressive episode occurs, the acute phase of treatment is considered to be over and the continuation phase begins. In the acute phase, the primary focus of these patients is helping them achieve remission from a depressive episode and then on returning them to a normal level of functioning. Treatment in this phase can include a number of approaches, including pharmacotherapy and different non-pharmacotherapy options. The recommended duration of pharmacotherapy typically um, is, occurs for uh, four to six weeks to ensure that they've had a sufficient duration of time to respond. Non-pharmacotherapy options may require more time, up to a few months, for meaningful improvement. During the continuation phase, clinicians should monitor patients for four to nine months to ensure that no re recurring depressive symptoms are present. If symptoms return during that time, patients would then be classified as having a relapse of the same depressive episode. However, if during this period patients show no relapse of depressive symptoms, they're considered in recovery. If patients develop depressive symptoms at a later time, their diagnosis is a recurrent episode or the presentation of a new separate depressive episode, and the cycle starts back at the beginning. The APA suggests depression-focused non-farm psychotherapy, such as cognitive behavioral therapy, as a preferred choice of treatment, since data suggests that it provides the most consistent efficacy for preventing relapse in patients with treatment-resistant depression. The maintenance phase primarily serves those patients who have had three or more depressive episodes in their lifetime or have been diagnosed with chronic MDD. However, those with risk factors for recurrence or with comorbidities could also be considered as candidates for maintenance treatment. During this phase, clinicians should strive to maintain recovery and prevent relapse by continuing any medication or adjunctive therapies that have proven efficacy. Patients should also continue any successful non-farm management, but at a reduced frequency from the acute phase. The prevalence of treatment-resistant depression is not clear due to the lack of a standard definition. In 2016, it was reported that about 6.7% of adults in the United States, or about 16 million people, experienced a depressive episode in the last year, the great majority in MDD. Treatment for MDD can be inadequate because patients either do not seek care at all, or the care they receive is substandard. Even for patients with MDD receiving adequate treatment, only about 30% experience full recovery or remission. The remaining 70% will either respond without remission or not respond at all. Treatment-resistant depression represents the highest direct and indirect medical costs among MDD patients. Individuals with TRD are twice as likely to be hospitalized, and the cost of this hospitalization is more than six times the mean total cost for depressed patients who are not treatment-resistant. The STAR-D trial, which I'll be discussing later, included a broad range of adults diagnosed with MDD, and they found that among individuals who received antidepressant medication as initial acute treatment, only about 37% achieved remission at level one based on two scales used for the primary and secondary outcomes. 
Among those who moved on to the second level of acute treatment, about 19% of the original sample reached remission, meaning that 56% of those who began acute tr treatment remitted after one or two treatment trials. If treatment resistance is defined as the failure of two or more treatment trials to achieve remission, then the study suggests that 44% of those treated for non-psychotic MDD have treatment-resistant depression, which further emphasizes that these patients are complex and may undergo multiple trials and additions of medications before they achieve remission. The exact cause of depression is unknown and is most likely multifactorial and complex. In general, depression can stem from both genetic and environmental factors. Family history is a strong risk factor for these patients. Environmental risk factors can include lifetime traumas and psychosocial stressors, such as loss of employment or low socioeconomic status. Depressive disorders affect women almost twice as likely as they affect men. Treatment-resistant depression specifically is associated with comorbid conditions, such as chronic illnesses, thyroid disorders, chronic pain, obesity, vitamin B12 or folate deficiencies, and anemia, to name a few as well as comorbid psychiatric disorders, medications, and then the onset of major depression occurring in patients less than 18 years of age. The pathophysiology of treatment-resistant depression remains unknown. However, it is thought to be from a number of genetic factors as well as the biology of the brain. Genetic factors may affect response to antidepressants by influencing drug distribution and metabolism, serum and brain drug concentrations, and target molecules. Cytochrome P450 enzymes are responsible for the metabolism of many antidepressants and variations in certain CYP enzymes, particularly CYP2D6 and 2C19, have been associated with variations in serum concentration of many antidepressants. Folic acid and its active form L-methylfolate have been studied for the treatment of MDD. However, conversion of folic acid is highly variable due to genetic polymorphisms and the active form only being able to cross the blood-brain barrier. Methyl tetrahydrofolate reductase, or MTHFR, is the enzyme needed for the conversion of folic acid into its active form. Lack of MTHFR, or a genetic polymorphism reduced function variant of the enzyme, ultimately leads to decreased levels of activated folic acid. These variations may possibly influence clinical responses, and genomic tests are available to categorize P450 enzyme profiles, as well as the MTHFR gene, including the one-ohm testing we utilize at Mayo. However, the clinical utility of such testing remains investigational. MRIs and PET scans have also found that treatment-resistant depression is associated with functional abnormalities in specific brain regions and neural networks. Increased inflammatory or autoimmune markers have also been associated with treatment-resistant depression. Which leads us to our first question. Um, if you pull out your smartphones or tablets um, and download the Poll Everywhere app, or you can go to pollev.com slash mayorx or text mail RX to 22333. And the question is, which of the following would be the least likely cause for KS's treatment-resistant depression? A, genetic variations in CYP450 enzymes, B, normal MTHFR enzyme, C, functional abnormalities in specific brain regions, or D, increased inflammatory markers? Okay, so looks like majority of you are going with B, which is the correct answer. So um, the pathophysiology, as discussed before, is thought to be from a number of genetic factors, including the SIP system, as well as potentially a reduced MTHFR enzyme, which is why the normal MTHFR would be the least likely cause.
The pathophys is also thought to be from functional abnormalities of the neurobiology, as well as increased inflammatory or autoimmune markers. Many psychiatric disorders, including depression, typically involve a combination of pharmacotherapy as well as non-pharmacotherapy. First, we'll be starting with non-pharmacotherapy options. Initial therapy for MDD may include evidence-based psychotherapy, such as cognitive behavioral therapy, interpersonal therapy, and psychoeducation, as monotherapy for mild to moderate depression or combined with medications for moderate to severe depression. Complementary and alternative interventions include physical exercise, yoga, mindfulness training, meditation, and light therapy, and they have also been utilized to treat depression. For moderate to severe depression or more complex patients, alternatives or adjuncts to pharmacotherapy may include electroconvulsive therapy, transcranial magnetic stimulation therapy, or vagal nerve stimulation. Electroconvulsive therapy is about 70 to 90% effective for MDD and may be recommended as a treatment option for severe depression or after antidepressant failures for treatment-resistant depression. Pharmacogenomics is another tool that can be utilized in the treatment of many psychiatric disorders, specifically with the guidance of our pharmacotherapy. Drug metabolism occurs in many sites in the body, including the liver, intestinal wall, lungs, kidneys, and plasma. As the primary site of drug metabolism, the liver functions to detoxify and facilitate excretion of medications. Drug metabolism is achieved through phase one reactions, phase two reactions, or both. The most common phase one reaction is oxidation, which is catalyzed by the CYP450 system. The CYP system is responsible for the metabolism of a majority of our medications. Medications that share a common pathway have the potential for drug-drug interactions, as they may be inhibitors, inducers, or substrates for a specific CYP enzymatic pathway, thus altering the metabolism of concurrent administered agents. Drug interactions are not the only potential pitfalls related to the CYP system. Genetic mutations or polymorphisms of CYP enzymes are known to exist among patients. Depending on the phenotype encoded by these genes, the metabolism of certain drugs may be variable. Each person's ability to metabolize drugs is determined by the pairing of individual alleles he or she has inherited. When pharmacogenomic results are available on a patient with provided CYP enzymes, we can predict how well or lack thereof certain medications work, especially with our medications used for depression. A number of first-line antidepressants require the CYP enzymes for metabolism, especially CYP2D6 and CYP2C19. Patients can have genetic polymorphisms of CYP enzyme phenotypes ranging from ultra-rapid ultra metabolizer to poor metabolizer. In a patient with an ultra-rapid metabolizer phenotype, when taking an active drug requiring the metabolism of that CYP enzyme, we can predict them to have a decreased efficacy as the medication undergoes metabolism rapidly and the concentration of the drug diminished. On the other hand, if the patient has a poor metabolizer phenotype, when taking an active medication requiring the metabolism for that CYP enzyme, we can predict the medication will slowly metabolize and they may potentially experience accumulation of that medication leading to side effects. For example, escitalopram is a CYP2C19 substrate. If a patient is a poor metabolizer of CYP2C19, CYP2C19 will very slowly metabolize that medication and the patient may experience side effects as that medication can accumulate. Prodrugs are medications inactive in its intended pharmacological state and must be converted into its active form by metabolism. An example of a prodrug is venlafaxine, which requires CYP2D6 for metabolism or activation into its active form. When looking at prodrugs with a patient with an ultra-rapid metabolizer phenotype, we can predict the opposite will occur of an active drug, potentially leading to accumulation. 
since the drug is being rapidly converted into its active form or lack of efficacy in a poor metabolizer as the medication is slowly or not at all being activated. Folic acid and its active form L-methylfolate have been studied for the treatment of MDD. However, conversion of folic acid is highly variable due to genetic polymorphism and the active form only being able to cross the blood-brain barrier. MTHFR is the enzyme needed for the conversion of folic acid to its active form. Lack of MTHFR or genetic polymorphism reduced function variant of the enzyme ultimately leads to decreased levels of activated folic acid. Folic acid picks up methyl groups from glycine and serine, which are non-essential amino acids, and make 5,10-methylene tetrahydrofolate, which is then converted by the methyl tetrahydrofolate reductase enzyme, or MTHFR, to L5-methyl tetrahydrofolate, or activated folic acid, or L-methylfolate. In a deficiency of MTHFR, lack of activated folic acid, and lack of ability to reduce homocysteine back to methionine, decreases the amount of neurotransmitters made, including serotonin. Essentially, folic acid is considered to be a prodrug since it needs to be converted to the active parent drug by enzymatic reaction. This brings us to our first study. A 2012 study sought to investigate the effect of L-methylfolate augmentation in the treatment of MDD in patients who had partial response or no response to SSRIs. They conducted two randomized double-blind parallel sequential trials. In the first trial, patients were randomized to one of three treatment groups in a two to three to three ratio. The study was divided into two 30-day phases. One group of patients received placebo in both phases. Another group received placebo in phase one and 7.5 milligrams of L-methylfolate in phase two. And the third group received 7.5 milligrams of L-methylfolate in phase one and then 15 milligrams in phase two. All participants were taking an SSRI at baseline and continued throughout the trial. Of note, according to the format of the study, only patients who completed phase one and did not achieve treatment response as indicated by the Hamilton Depression Rating Scale are analyzed in phase two. The HAMD scale is a depression scoring tool somewhat similar to the PHQ-9, but I will discuss that later. The primary outcome was the difference in response rates according to the HAMD scale and in degree of improvement of HAMD between the two treatment groups. Response according to the HAMD was defined as a reduction of at least 50% in the HAMD score during treatment or a final score of seven or less. There was no statistical difference between placebo and adjunctive L-methylfolate at 7.5 milligrams per day for response or change in depression of symptom score. Among patients who did not respond to the 7.5 milligrams of L-methylfolate in phase one, but whose dosage was increased to the 15 milligrams in phase two, the response rates in phase two were numerically greater than in patients who continued on antidepressant monotherapy and placebo, although that difference did fall short of statistical significance. Given the possibility of better uh, response with a longer trial of L-methylfolate, the target dose for this second trial was set at 15 milligrams per day. So in their second trial, the patients were randomized similarly to the two to three to three ratio, and the study was also divided into two 30-day phases. One group, again, received uh, placebo in both phases. Another group received placebo in phase one and 15 milligrams of L-methylfolate in phase two. And then the third group received 15 milligrams of L-methylfolate in both phases. Primary outcome was the same as the first trial. The difference in response rates according to the Hamilton D-score and in degree of improvement in the Hamilton D-score between the two treatment groups. 
In the second trial, 15 milligrams per day of adjunctive L-methylfolate appeared to result in treatment outcome superior to continued SSRI therapy plus placebo in both primary outcome measures, achieving statistical significance both in the difference in response rate and in the degree of improvement on the Hamilton D scale. Again, L-methylfolate is still investigational. Although the previous study discussed the use with treatment-resistant depression, this study didn't specifically look at the patients with the MTHFR reduced function variant. There are some studies that did look specifically at patients with this polymorphism in relation to treatment-resistant depression, but without looking specifically at L-methylfolate. L-methylfolate is an over-the-counter product. Although unsure if every retail pharmacy carries it, it can, however, be found online through many different sites, including Amazon. L-methylfolate is generally well-tolerated. Mild side effects were reported in the trials, including headache and GI side effects. Overall, further studies are needed, but based on the little data, we do have L-methylfolate could be a safe option in some of our patients. And this leads us to our second question. If we go back to our poll everywhere, um, which of the following explains the role of MTHFR in folic acid metabolism? The enzyme used in the production of inactivated folic acid, B, the enzyme used in the metabolism of active folic acid into inactive folic acid, C, the enzyme used in the excretion of inactivated folic acid, or D, the enzyme used in the conversion of inactivated folic acid to its active form. Okay, I... I think everyone has submitted their answer. So it looks like most of you said the answer was D, which is correct. Folic acid requires the enzyme MTHFR to be converted into its active form, L-methyl tetrahydrofolate or L-methylfolate. Now that we've discussed non-pharmacotherapy and pharmacogenomics, we'll move on to our pharmacotherapy options, looking specifically at the Canadian Network for Mood and Anxiety Treatment Guidelines. They recommend starting with a first-line antidepressant. They classify them as SSRIs, SNRIs, mirtazapine, or bupropion as first-line options. If a patient has a partial or no response to the initial treatment, clinicians should consider the, that the treatment dose is optimized. Next, the CANMAT guidelines continue to recommend switching first-line antidepressants, specifically ones with evidence of superiority for efficacy or they also recommend adding an adjunctive or augmentation agent. Adjunctive strategy refers to the addition of a second medication to an initial medication. The CANMAT guidelines prefer the term adjunctive over combination, combination being adding a second antidepressant to the first, or augmentation being adding another medication that is not an antidepressant, because some augmentation options also have antidepressant effects as monotherapy, but both terms are still utilized. Recommendations for adjunctive agents are based on efficacy and tolerability. First-line adjunctive augmentation agents, they include some of the atypical antipsychotics. Second-line, they include bupropion, lithium, myothyronine, and then they have IV ketamine as an experimental option. The next step they re recommend is switching to a second or third-line antidepressant, and they included TCAs, MAO inhibitors, or trazodone. The sequential treatment alternatives to relieve depression, or STAR-D trial, is one of the largest trials on the treatment of MDD. Their goal was to determine which of several treatments are most effective for participants with MDD who experience an unsatisfactory clinical outcome following an initial and, if necessary, subsequent treatments. At level one, eligible participants were assigned to receive the SSRI citalopram. After level one, about 28% reached remission based on the primary outcome. 
Participants without a satisfactory clinical outcome to citalopram were eligible to enter a series of randomized controlled trials. The first trial at level two compared the effectiveness of seven different treatments, including four switch options and three augmentation options. The switch options being sertraline, bupropion, venlafaxine, and cognitive behavioral therapy. And the augmentation options, including uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, bupropion, and buspirone added to citalopram. Participants without a satisfactory therapeutic response to both level one and level two entered level 2A, a randomized controlled trial that compared the effectiveness of two different switch options, bupropion and venlafaxine. And this ensured that all participants who entered level three had not responded to two different antidepressant medication treatments. After level two and 2A, about 17 to 30% additionally reached remission based on the primary outcome alone. At level three, they compared the effectiveness of two switch options, mirtazapine or nortriptyline, and two augmentation options being lithium or liothyronine, plus one of the previous treatments. After level three, an additional 12 to 25% reached remission based on the primary outcome alone. The remaining participants could enter level four, which compared the effectiveness of two different switch options. After level four, an additional seven to 14% reached remission. In summary of the STAR-D trial, many different therapies were used in treatment-resistant depression, whether that was augmentation or switching agents, and more and more patients achieved remission with the increasing number of trials, which further speaks to the fact that patients with treatment-resistant depression, it's not uncommon to trial multiple agents to achieve remission. Now I would like to show the place in therapy for agents used for augmentation. At this point, I'll be going through several different treatment options for treatment-resistant depression. It's worth noting that there are multiple different depression scoring tools for each trial used in defining response in remission. For the sake of time, I'll not be going into detail into each of those, but I will note that the PHQ-9 was not utilized in the majority of the studies. The PHQ-9 can be used as a self-assessment and specialized training is not required to score it whereas the Hamilton Depression Scale or the HAMD discussed with the L-methylfolate trial, as well as the Montgomery Asperg Depression Rating Scale or the MADRS and the Clinical Global Impression Scale or the CGI are clinician administered assessments and they require specialized training. As discussed previously, augmentation is the addition of another medication that is not an antidepressant. Augmentation options that have been studied for MDD and TRD include atypical antipsychotics, lithium, liothyronine, lamotrigine, esketamine, and L-methylfolate. There are several atypical antipsychotics available in the U.S., including some that are approved for indications related to MDD and TRD. Aripiprazole was the first drug to obtain FDA approval for the adjunctive treatment of MDD in conjunction with antidepressants. This was soon followed by the quetiapine XR formulation and olanzapine in combination with fluoxetine. Of note, brexpiprazole is another agent that is FDA approved, but not included in the studies that I'll be discussing today. Looking at our first study, a Cochrane meta-analysis evaluated 28 studies on five atypical antipsychotics, comparing the effects of the drugs alone or adding them or placebo to antidepressants for MDD and dyspnea. I'll be discussing the trials on augmentation only, which included aripiprazole, olanzapine, quetiapine, and risperidone. The primary outcome was the number of patients who responded to treatment, showing a reduction of at least 50% of the HAMD scale or the MADRS, or at least much improved on the CGI scale. If none of these criteria were indicated, the criteria applied by the authors was used. For aripiprazole, there was a significant benefit 
for the aripiprazole group for response as defined by the original study and the CGI score. For olanzapine, there was no significant difference in response as defined by the original study or reduction in the MADRS score. For quetiapine, there was a significant difference in favor of the quetiapine group for response as defined by the original study, reduction of the MADRS, and CGI, but no significant difference in relation to the HAMD score. For risperidone, there was a significant benefit in response as defined by the original study, but no difference in the reduction of the HAMD score. The authors concluded that aripiprazole and quetiapine and partly olanzapine and risperidone augmentation showed benefit effect versus placebo. However, most atypical antipsychotics showed worse tolerability. Another meta-analysis evaluated 16 studies on four atypical antipsychotics, again, olanzapine, risperidone, quetiapine, and aripiprazole, used in augmentation with antidepressants versus placebo in patients with non-psychotic major depressive disorder that was resistant to prior antidepressant treatment. Outcomes, again, included response, which was defined as an improvement of 50% or more from baseline to endpoint on the HAMD scale or the MADRS. Remission was defined according to each individual trial, and discontinuation rates due to adverse events um, was another outcome. Response for drug versus placebo was statistically significant. The risk difference translated into a number needed to treat of nine, and the overall pooled response rate for treatment with an atypical agent was 44.2% compared to 29.9% for placebo. The results for remission was also statistically significant. The risk difference also indicated a number needed to treat of nine, and remission rates were 30.7% for atypical antipsychotics versus 17.2% for placebo. The rate of discontinuation due to adverse events was statistically significantly higher for the atypical antipsychotic group than placebo, with a number needed to harm of 17. The pooled adverse events discontinuation rates were 9.1% for atypical antipsychotics and 2.3% in the placebo group. Their overall conclusion was that atypical antipsychotics are effective augmentation agents in MDD, but are associated with an increased risk of discontinuation due to adverse events. Common side effects reported from both trials included weight gain, extrapyramidal effects, sedation, and akathisia. And this moves us to our trials on lithium. PubMed meta-analysis evaluated 10 double-blind randomized controlled trials for lithium augmentation with TCAs or SSRIs versus placebo. The primary outcome was similar to the other studies, response rate defined as a 50% or more decrease in the HAMD score or a final score of seven or less, or a decrease of two or more points on the short clinical rating scale among all the studies. The mean response rate was 41.2% under lithium augmentation and 14.4% in the placebo group, which was statistically significant. Of note, only five out of the 10 randomized controlled trials showed statistical significance, and nine out of 10 had a maximum of 35 patients. Only two out of the 10 trials, lithium was added to an SSRI, the rest were added to TCAs. There was no mention if lithium levels were monitored in this meta-analysis. Another meta-analysis evaluated nine randomized placebo-controlled trials of lithium augmentation with SSRIs, TCAs, MAU inhibitors, or trazodone. The primary outcome was similar, response rates defined as a 50% or more improvement on the HAMD scale. Response of lithium augmentation versus placebo was statistically significant with a number needed to treat of five. Of note, only three of the trials lithium augmentation was added to SSRIs, 
there was mention that in two of the trials, patients who achieved lithium blood levels within the desired range were more likely to respond. The next study compared the effectiveness of lithium versus lyothionine augmentation as a third-level treatment for patients with MDD conducted as part of the STAR-D trial. Participants were randomly assigned to these treatments in a one-to-one -one ratio. A total of 142 patients with non-psychotic MDD who had not achieved remission or who were intolerant to initial prospective treatment with citalopram and a second switch or augmentation trial were randomly assigned to augmentation with lithium or lyothionine for up to 14 weeks. The primary outcome was remission, which was defined as a score of seven or less on the HAMD scale, and the secondary being response, defined as a 50% or more reduction of baseline score on the quick inventory of depressive symptoms self-report. After a mean of 9.6 weeks of treatment, re remission rates were 15.9% in the augmentation with lithium group or 24.7% with the lyothionine group, although the difference between treatments was not statistically significant. Response rates were also not shown to be statistically significant between treatment groups. The lithium group reported the maximum frequency, intensity, and burden of side effects, although the difference between groups was significant only for frequency, and more participants in the lithium group left treatment due to side effects, which was also statistically significant. Of note, the median lithium blood level, which was assessed in about 56% of patients who received lithium augmentation, was 0.6 milliequivalents per liter. Lithium is a narrow therapeutic index drug and serum levels should be monitored when taking this medication. The goal serum lithium level is point, about 0.5 or 0.6 to 1.2 milliequivalents per liter, measured 12 hours after the last lithium intake for a trough. This is lower than bi in bipolar, um, which has a low end range of 0.8, oops, but the same upper end range of 1.2 milliequivalents per liter. Lab monitoring is recommended on a weekly basis initially, and then once stable, they can decrease to about three to four times per year in certain patients. It's typically dosed one to two times daily, and it does have quite a few drug interactions, so it's always important to check with other medications or within medication switches. Significant side effects can occur with lithium, including arrhythmias, CNS effects, GI effects, lithium toxicity, renal toxicity, and hypothyroidism, to name a few, all of which are dose-related, which is why it's important to check levels. Others include tremor and weight gain. Lyothyronine has a novel mechanism of action, and it's proposed that it um, desensitization of the serotonin inhibitory receptors, nuclear receptors on gene expression, and increased brain metabolism. It is shown to be useful even in the absence of thyroid abnormalities, and overall, it's pretty well tolerated. And this brings us to our next trial on lamotrigine. This next trial was the first large multi-center double-blind placebo-controlled trial to evaluate the safety and efficacy of lamotrigine when added to an antidepressant in a group of patients with treatment-resistant non-psychotic MDD who had failed at least one adequate tr trial of an antidepressant. Patients were first treated for eight weeks with an open-label SSRI, and individuals with a HAMD score of 15 or more were then randomized on a double-blind basis to receive either placebo or lamotrigine in doses titrated upward for 10 weeks. The dosage of blinded medication was adjusted upward to a maximum of 400 milligrams per day in patients assigned to lamotrigine until their HAMD score was seven or less or until side effects were prohibitive. Lamotrigine was given once daily and subjects had to be able to tolerate a minimum dosage of at least 100 milligrams to remain in the study. 
The primary outcome was a satisfactory rating score using the MADRS score, and secondary outcomes included the HAMD score and the CGI severity and CGI improvement ratings. The primary outcome did not find statistical significant difference between lamotrigine and placebo groups. And similar secondary analyses of the HAMD and CGI scores also did not demonstrate a significant difference. Examination of the treatment differences at each visit showed a trend toward significance for the observed case total MADRS score at the final study visit. However, inclusion of the pre-planned covariates did produce a significant benefit between group difference for the HAMD score. Although the mean MADRS and HAMD scores were not significantly different across treatment groups at baseline, there was a significantly greater number of lamotrigine patients who were rated as severely ill at the time of randomization, and they had numerically a greater number of prior episodes of MDD. Post hoc analyses suggest a greater response to lamotrigine in the more severely depressed and more treatment-resistant patients than those seen with placebo. Overall in the study, lamotrigine was pretty well tolerated. However, it does have the potential for causing some significant hypersensitivity reactions, including Steven Johnson syndrome, toxic epidermal necrolysis, or 10, and drug reaction with eosinophilia and systemic syndromes, or DRESS. A more common side effect reported in the study included nausea. And this leads us to our last medication, esketamine. A 2019 phase three double-blind active controlled study was conducted comparing the efficacy and safety of switching patients from an ineffective antidepressant to flexible-dosed esketamine nasal spray plus a newly initiated antidepressant or to a new antidepressant plus placebo. This study enrolled adults with moderate to severe non-psychotic MDD and a history of non-response to at least two antidepressants in the current episode with one antidepressant assessed prospectively. Confirmed non-responders were randomly assigned to treatment with esketamine nasal spray, 56 or 84 milligrams twice weekly, or placebo. The study consisted of three phases, a four-week screening or prospective observation phase, a four-week double-blind treatment phase, and up to 24 weeks of follow-up. Patients who had not responded to the prospective antidepressant treatment by the end of the screening phase entered the four-week double-blind treatment phase, at which time they discontinued all current antidepressant treatments and were randomly assigned to the new study treatment. The primary outcome was changed from baseline to day 28 in the MADRS score and was assessed by a mixed effects model using repeated measures. Change in MADRS score with esketamine plus antidepressant was significantly greater than with antidepressant plus placebo at day 28. The conclusion is that esketamine has a novel mechanism of action and rapid onset of antidepressant efficacy, and the study supports the efficacy and safety of esketamine nasal spray as a rapidly acting antidepressant for patients with treatment-resistant depression. The mechanism of action of esketamine is that it's the S enantiomer of ketamine with a higher affinity for the NMDA receptor. It does have FDA approval for treatment-resistant depression in the intranasal formulation. It also has a potential for abuse and is only available through a risk and evaluation and mitigation strategy or REMS program, requiring patients to self-administer the drug in a medical office and then be monitored for two hours by clinicians. The purpose of the REMS program is to ensure safety and prevent misuse and diversion. In the study previously discussed, the most common adverse effects were dizziness, dissociation, dyscusia or altered taste, vertigo, nausea, and sedation. Here's a summary of all the augmentation agents discussed today. We have some atypical antipsychotics that have FDA approval and some that remain investigational. 
Common side effects seen with our atypical antipsychotics include weight gain, EPS, sedation, and akathisia. Lithium is utilized off-label, and it's important to remember that these patients will need close follow-up due to the narrow therapeutic index and levels will need to be checked. Always be mindful of drug interactions with all agents, but especially with lithium. Biothyronine is also utilized off-label and can be used in the absence of thyroid abnormalities. Lamotrigine remains investigational and may come at the expense of some severe hypersensitivity reactions. Esketamine, our intranasal agent, is FDA approved and available via a REMS program. And lastly, our OTC option, L-methylfolate, remains investigational. And this leads us to our last question, bringing us back to our case. KS is on fluoxetine 40 milligrams daily with a pHQ9 score of 29, indicating severe depression. She is willing to try adding a medication to her current regimen. She does have concerns regarding weight gain. She also reports having a family member who experienced Steven Johnson syndrome with lamotrigine. As one of her primary healthcare personnel, you know she has a history of poor follow-up with appointments. Which of the following medications would be optimal to add to KS's current regimen? A, olanzapine, B, lithium, C, lamotrigine, or D, liothyronine? Okay, so it looks like the majority of you chose D, which was the answer that I was looking for. Since the patient does have concern for weight gain, we'd want to avoid olanzapine and our other atypical antipsychotics due to that side effect. The patient does have a poor a history of poor follow-up with appointments, so we wouldn't want to utilize lithium as we will have to monitor levels closely with that agent. And then since she had a family member who experienced SJS, she would probably likely want to avoid the lamotrigine option, which leads us to our last option, liothyronine. Although not FDA approved, it is utilized off-label. In summary, the etiology and pathophysiology of treatment-resistant depression is very complex and involves multiple pathways mediated by genetics, the brain biology, and inflammatory processes. Pharmacogenomics can be utilized in the selection of treatment, whether that be utilizing the CYP enzymes or the MTHFR variant. Our ambulatory care pharmacists, and specifically our pharmacogenomics and care pharmacists, are a great resource to utilize when treating these patients and determining if pharmacogenomics would be a good fit for our patient or what direction to go if the patient already has their pharmacogenomics done. Um, there are also several medications used for patients with treatment-resistant depression, including augmentation options, um, and agents should be chosen with patient-specific factors in mind. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, subscribe using iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. Thank you for listening to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds. Join us weekly for more exciting clinical pharmacology topics.